Pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, I, I, I pray, Lord, this strange story that just seems so disconnected with this section of Scripture, Lord, uh, I thank you that it's there. I thank you by, by the power of your Holy Spirit working through Mark that you put this here in front of us, Lord, to learn, to teach us, to shape us, to show us, Lord, how, how you deal with even our own blindness. We might, we're not physically blind, uh, all of us, but we have spiritual blindness that all of us have, Lord, and you deal with our spiritual blindness. You heal our spiritual blindness, and I thank you for that, Lord. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear today, Lord. Take us from, from blind and, and demanding to, to seeing and surrendering, Lord. By the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So uh, when I first read this story, I don't, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but we're doing some pretty heavy, thick chunks of Scripture week by week. Uh, but when I first read this, I was like, how in the world does this connect? And I had to wrestle with, wrestle with this for a while. But uh, like I was saying last week, this whole big chunk of Scripture we're seeing is, is Jesus is dealing with blindness. If you remember last week, Jesus was, was showing us the, the blindness of, of the Pharisees. Right? The, what we saw in verses uh, 11 through 12 was Jesus having this, this, uh, this argument with the Pharisees. Right? The Pharisees had come to argue with him. They were demanding a sign. They were hard-hearted, and, and they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised Savior. And uh, part of the reason they couldn't accept Jesus as the promised Savior is because he did not fit their, their ideas uh, of what the Savior would be look like, right? Their, their ideas of the Savior would be this, this conquering Messiah who would come in and, and restore Israel, overthrow Rome, subjugate Gentiles, and, and, and Jesus wasn't about any of that. His kingdom wasn't like their, their idea of a kingdom. And so when they're demanding a sign, what they're really demanding is Jesus start acting like the Messiah they were expecting. Right? So they're demanding, they're demanding, and they're blind. And, and Jesus gets on the boat with his disciples, and, and he gives his disciples a parable. He says, beware, watch out for the yeast of the, the Pharisees and of Herod. Right? And, the, and his disciples, right over their head, they don't get it. They're spiritually blind still. And, and, and they start talking about, oh, what, what, was he mad because we only brought a, one loaf of bread or something? And Jesus goes on and he, and he gives them seven questions. You know, don't you hear? Don't you see? Right? And at the end of that, he says, do you still not understand? And they don't. They don't. They're spiritually blind. And, and so... I wanted to make sure you understand what spiritual blindness is. Spiritual blindness is natural man's problem. It's every human being, the condition of every human being in the flesh, outside of, of God opening our eyes, right? It's having eyes that, that work, that see, but don't perceive the things of God. Don't perceive spiritual things. It's having ears that can hear but can't understand spiritual things, right? So, uh, for example, if you've ever, maybe you've shared Christ with someone, 
and you're just like, you're just on top of it, man. You're talking about the cross, and, and you're sharing your testimony, and, and look how good Christ is, and look how he changed my life, and, and you've been praying for this person. And, you, you know, you got all, you feel like, man, I'm, I got all the answers today, right? And, and, you, and you look at this person, you're like, won't you just believe? Won't you just accept Christ? And they're like, oh, yeah, uh, well, I'm going to keep going to church, and I'm going I'm to try harder, right? It's just like, they don't get it, right? They, they think it's about trying and cleaning yourself up, and you're saying, no, it's, it's about trusting Jesus. They just don't get it. I, there's been times when I've, uh, people have come to me for, for help and counseling, and, and, and I know they don't know Christ, and so I'm like, yeah, let's get I, I look at it as an opportunity to share Christ with, with people, and they come to me, and they're maybe, maybe they tell me about how uh, their girlfriend broke up with them, and their heart broke in, and and, and I and I so I share the gospel with them, and and they look at me like I'm crazy. Why are you sharing Jesus with me, dude? I just want you to tell me how to get my girlfriend back, right? I've had, let me tell you, I've I've had that same scenario multiple times, and you're saying no. The problem is you don't need your girlfriend. What you need is Jesus to to fulfill you and satisfy you, right? And that's what spiritual blindness does. It just you, they can. They can see and they can hear, but they just can't get it, right? This is what the Scripture says. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They're foolishness to him, is that what it's saying? And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned, Right? So the things of God, the things of the Spirit of God are, are just foolishness. And, and, it's, they, and they can't understand because they're spiritually discerned. I mean, that's, what, that's a way to say they're spiritually blind, right? They don't have spiritual discernment. Discernment is, is to be able to d- discern and decide between truth and error, and they can't just decide on spiritual, th- on spiritual things, right? It says in Romans 3.10 that no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So natural man, this is, Romans 3 tells us what natural man's condition is, right? That we're not righteous before God. We don't understand the things of God. And we don't even seek after God, right? God's got to do something. We are totally dependent on God's grace to move in our lives. And and so I think this is important to know that uh, because of this fact that our job as, as believers when we share Christ with people is not to win arguments. Our, our job is not to beat people over the head with the Bible. It, it's not to, to uh, you know, and I think we've got to know also that we don't save anyone, right? We can't save anyone. We can't convince anyone. We can't change anyone. But what we can do is share God's truth with love in grace and, and prayerfully share it and ask God to move and God to change their hearts and give them eyes to see, right? God works through us, but we can't do it ourselves. We need the Spirit. We need God to move, all right? And so what this is also showing us, this story here is that Jesus heals spiritual blindness, right? I think that's why this story of the blind man here is, it's a story, it's an illustration for what, what Jesus needs to do in the life of his disciples and every single one of us, right? Every single Christian needs Jesus to do what he, what he does for this man 
in a spiritual way, right? And so what we're going to see is Jesus taking his disciples from blind and demanding. We're going to see a blind and demanding disciples today, just like the Pharisees. But he's going to take them from, to seeing and surrendering. And it starts today, and we're going to continue to see that in these following weeks. All right, so, so Jesus, let's look at this first story, right? We, we got this blind man in Bethsaida. Jesus pulls him to the side, right? And Jesus heals him in two attempts, which is a really strange uh, occurrence, right? It tells us he spits in this man's eyes, which is pretty disgusting, right, to spit in someone's eyes. I like to picture that scene, just hawking some big old loogies right in his eyes, <laughs> that's my immaturity, I guess. Uh, but uh, it, so he spits in his eyes and he asks him. Uh, I'm sorry. Do you see anything? Right? He asks him, "Do you see anything?" And the and the man says, "I see people, but but it looks like trees walking." Right? This man goes from being blind to now blurry. Right? He's blind to blurry. And then, and then we see a second attempt. Jesus puts his hands on, the, on his eyes, and his eyes are open. His, his sight is restored, and now he sees clearly. So he goes from blind to blurry to clarity, right? And so this is a strange thing because it takes Jesus two attempts to heal this man. Right? It almost feels like, what's Jesus having, an off day? It's a, it's a bad day? He, he forgot the, the, the right trick to, to heal someone's eyes. And, and, and that cannot be the case because we've seen other times where Jesus just says, be healed and people are healed or, or he's not even there. And he says, go home and you'll find your daughter healed. Right? So that's not the case. But I, I think Jesus is, is healing this man gradually to show the disciples how Jesus will, will gradually heal their blindness. And how, they'll, how he'll, he'll grow their faith gradually, okay? So because like the disciples, or like the blind man, the disciples have eyes that are failing to see, right? And, and, and he'll take them as well from blind to blurry to clarity, right? And so all this is is just a way that, to talk about how Jesus grows our faith, right? Because natural man who is spiritually blind has no faith, right? Then Jesus brings us to faith. He, he saves us. He opens our eyes, right? The, the spit in the eyes. And we begin to see, but we see kind of blurry, right? We have, we have weak faith. We're, 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 we're young Christians, and we have to grow in our faith. And then what Jesus does, then he takes the rest of our lives and helps us grow in clarity, right? He grows our faith so we can see him and understand him and trust him more. Now, the faith happens when we're blurry still. We still have faith. We're saved. But, but God grows that all the way to the day when we stand before him in, in his kingdom, right? When we see clearly. And that's what God does. So let's look at this second story here. It's in Mark eight twenty-seven through 30. I'm going to read here. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? 
Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. All right, so we see this, two questions that Jesus asks his disciples now, right? It's always easier to talk about what other people believe, so he asks them, who do people say that I am, right? And they answer, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets, which all other, anything less than, than the Christ, right? Lord, creator of all the universe, Yahweh, Jehovah, it is, is, is less than who Jesus truly is. And it's, you know, it's false. So even when people call Jesus a, a good teacher or, or, a, or a prophet or an inspirational leader, it's an offense to God, right? Because Jesus is, is so much greater. And, and, so he, and then he goes further now. Who do you say that I am? Now, Peter confess, he says, you're the Messiah. The Messiah, right? He says uh, here, you're the Christ, right? You're the, you're the promised one. You're the Savior, right? It, this is an amazing moment in the life of Peter and the, and the disciples, right? This is the moment where they go from blind to blurry because Peter is speaking as a representative of these disciples, right? They've just gone from blind to blurry. They've come to faith. This is a, a, an amazing moment to, to be celebrated. And how do I know that they've come to faith? Well, Matthew sixteen seventeen records this same incident. And it tells us in Matthew sixteen seventeen, Blessed are you, Jesus says, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven, right? So this is like the, the first stage of that man's spiritual blindness being healed, right? Peter can see now that Jesus is the Christ. And this confession of Christ is a turning point in the book of Mark. The first part of the book of Mark has, has been focused on who Jesus is. Now the second part, now that Jesus has healed their spiritual blindness, is going to focus on his mission, what he came to do, okay? And we're going to see how he doesn't yet get it fully as we continue to go on. All right, we go on to Mark 31 through 33. So, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Right? So it's just this, uh, this crazy pinnacle where, where Peter finally comes to faith. Right? He finally gets that Jesus is the Messiah. And, it's, and Jesus says, and now here's what's going to happen. Right? I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going I'm to go to the cross. I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. And, and the disciples' minds are just blown, right? Because they've been affected by the yeast of the Pharisees, right? They're, they're excited, right? He's the Christ. This is good news for us. We're going to be part of, of this restored Israel. We're, we're going to sit on his right hand and his left hand and rule with him. And, and this is going to mean riches and glory and man this is going to be amazing right and jesus says no i'm the christ and i'm gonna die right this is this is 
opposite of, of the world view of, of power and success, right? This is, the, the world says you got to conquer, and Jesus says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. Now, Isaiah 53 gives us this, this prophetic picture of, of the Messiah. Isaiah 53 is this clearest picture of, uh, of, of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the, the man of sorrows who would, who would be rejected and, and scorned and, and the wrath of God would be upon him, right? But the, the Jews never attributed that verse to the Messiah. So this was a, a, a shock to them. A suffering Messiah was inconceivable. And because of that, because Peter is still blurry, he's seeing people like, like trees walking around, he rebukes Jesus, right? No way, Jesus. It can't be this way. You're, you're, no, this is not what you're supposed to do. This is not what your mission's supposed to be about, right? And when he rebukes Jesus, he uses the same language as you would use to rebuke a demon. So it's like he's saying, no, Jesus, that, that's, that's demonic lies. No way, you can't die. Right? And, and uh, Jesus responds to Peter with rebuking him, right? In verse 33, he says, get behind me, Satan, because Peter is more concerned about his worldly gain than things of, of God's kingdom and, and eternal things and, and heavenly spiritual things. And when Jesus responds to Peter, he's saying the same thing. Same exact words in the Greek that he says to Satan in the wilderness. If you remember the last temptation when Jesus is in the wilderness, Satan takes him up to a high point and says, all this can be yours, right? Just follow me and all this can be yours. All this kingdom and all this earthly glory can be yours, Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So he's saying the same thing to Peter because that's what Peter's thinking, right? He's thinking earthly kingdom glory. In, in the words, in, in Matthew 4, the, the, in the English, it says, Jesus, uh, Jesus says, be gone, Satan. So how is Peter a warning for us? All right. Peter represents anyone who sets an agenda for God and demands that God fulfill those expectations. And so what we can tend to do is we can have desires whether they're, they're good or bad, we, have, we all have desires. But what happens is when we begin to think we deserve those desires, right? Because in reality, what do we really deserve from God? We don't deserve anything but His wrath, right? But we can begin to think we deserve those, those desires, and, and they, become, they turn to demands to God, right? So you have a desire. You feel like you deserve it. You're going to demand it from God. And it's going to lead to disappointment and discouragement, and even depression, right? Because God doesn't work on our terms. And, and so what, what, what Peter, what, what it'll look like with us is we begin to start grumbling before God. God, why did you give me these, these disobedient children? Right? They don't obey me. I, I'm doing my best. I'm, I'm praying. I'm trying to do all this stuff. And, and, and they still, man, why did you give me such, such difficult children? Or it could be, God, why, why don't you give me a better job? Why am I stuck in this horrible job? I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to live for you. Right? We cry out, 
that's not fair, God. Why, why, why is my car, why is my car break down this week? Right? We begin demanding to God. And many of our problems come from thinking we know better than God and we know what he should do. Right? So that, that's, that's Peter, right? He's just setting demands for God. And the second thing, Peter represents anyone who cannot accept the concept of suffering as part of God's plan. Right? Peter represents anyone that cannot accept suffering as part of God's plan. Right? It's inconceivable to him that the Messiah, the man with the greatest power, would suffer and die. And even more so that this, this Messiah would call us to suffer and die along with him, right? And so this is even more common today with the lies of, of the prosperity gospel, right? Uh, that if you're suffering, if you're, if you're sick or, or broke, then somehow you don't have enough faith. Right, So suffering is viewed as, as wrong and unnecessary, and we're supposed to try to stay away from it and avoid it at all costs, which is opposite of what, what Christ is calling us to. Right? He's calling us to, to suffering, as we're about to see here even, even more clearly. And, 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 so, and so God uses suffering in, in mighty ways. Right, He uses the suffering of, of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to restore all of creation. To save all human beings, and uh, and and he uses suffering in mighty ways in our own life, right? Romans one eight twenty eight we 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 quoted a lot, right? That God works all things for good for those who love Him and are called to His a purpose. And that doesn't mean that everything feels good or everything goes the way uh, we plan or desire, but God somehow in a mighty way uses everything. For our good and his glory. Right? The Bible tells us that he even uses evil for his glory, for his kingdom. And so our job is to, to trust him and, and surrender to him and put our hope in him in the midst of, of all those, in, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of this broken world. And to live with joy and, and be a light to the world as this world is, is broken and fallen. And, and when they see how joyful we are, how content we are. Right in a world filled with discontentment, a world that is chasing more and more things and stuff, and still isn't happy. You know, it's a powerful message to the world. So, here we let's let's read this last section here. We see in Mark eight thirty four through nine one, and the and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. 
right? So we see Jesus now. He, he gathers a crowd with him and his disciples. Gives them this, this shocking, one of the hardest statements in all of Scripture. Right? This is one of the hard sayings of Christ. This is the, the cost of discipleship. He calls his, he calls his disciples to, to d- deny self, right? To take up our cross and follow. And so to deny self is not, not is, is more than just denying things to yourself. What, it's deni- what it is, is a, it's a denial of oneself to yourself, right? Denial of oneself to yourself. In other words, Christians give up the right to control their lives, right? They give up the, they surrender the control of their lives to Jesus. We give up the right to, to decide how we're going to live, and we live as, as Christ leads us, right? As Christ directs us, we live. And so sometimes obedience to Christ will, will mean, you know, losing friends. It might mean losing family or, or money or, or, or comfort or security, right? It, it might mean those things, and it might even mean losing your physical life. That's what it says here. And thank God we live in, in, in America where, where, where we have freedom of religion, which is being tested. But, but thank God we live in, in a nation where we can worship freely. And, you know, Christians around the world, we, we have to remember that Christians all over this world are being persecuted and are dying for following Christ. Right? And so we, we can lose perspective of that, the reality of this, the reality of this call. Right, because to take up your cross means being open, literally for death to occur. And and so it brought great comfort. It brings great comfort to those who are being persecuted today. But it, it, in the days where Mark was writing this, Christians were being persecuted. Christians were being being crucified. Right for following Christ. And so it brought them great comfort in their day. Think about it. Right? They're, 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 they're being led off to be crucified. Our tendency would be think, oh, well, God must have, have abandoned me here, right? But they would know, no, this is, this is what Jesus said. This is the cost of being a disciple, and I'm going to follow him and to that cross. Right? It would have brought them great peace that God still loves them, even in the midst of, of whatever they were going through. And then he, he goes on further to say, in verse 35, if you try to save your life, you will lose it. So this is, this is a two-part statement here, right? The first part is you save it, you lose it. And so saving your life means two things. There's two ways you can try to save your life. The first way is through religion, right? This is the Pharisees' way, right? I'm going to do good. I'm going to try very hard. I'm going to keep all the rules. I'm going to be really try to be a really good person, I'm going to earn God's favor, right? And religion is rebellion to God because religion isn't trusting God's way, right? Religion isn't saying I'm going to surrender and trust in Jesus Christ and put my faith in him and not what I do, but what he has done for me, right? What religion says is, no, Jesus, I don't need what you have done on the cross. I'm going to do it myself. Do you see that? You see how that's rebellion? 
even though you're, maybe you're trying to do good things, right? It's still not trusting Jesus because Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. If you want to go to the Father, you go through me. Not through your good works. So religion is, is rebellion to God. Just as much as the second way is. And that's what's called irreligion or non-religion. Right? So this is, this is just how the everyday common folk uh, rebel against God as they just try to find happiness by living for themselves, right? And so, so they're chasing that. Maybe it's money and possessions and family, and they don't even all necessarily have to be bad things, but they're idols, right? They're not God. They're not, they're not surrendering to Christ, so they're living a, a godless and, and self-centered kind of life. And so even if you're a good person, you know, the Bible tells us that we're spiritually blind. Right? Even in our eyes, we, when, when we think good person, what God sees is filthy rags. Right? Because he, he sees us for who we really are. Right? So there's a religious and an irreligious way to try to save our life. But Jesus says if you pursue any one of these modes of trying to save your life in the end, you lose your life. Right? So now... In the meantime, we live an unfulfilled life, unsatisfied life. No matter how much stuff you get, they'll never satisfy you. Right? You see it over and over with, with all these celebrities when they finally get to the top and they got everything they ever dreamed of. Right? They say that, man, the journey was way better than it was here because they're there and, and they're miserable. Right? And, and it's the way we experience life right? when we're in the flesh and we're pursuing after things. And trying to find our fulfillment and other things outside of Christ, we, we get it. And then we got to get the next thing and we got to keep going and keep going, right? Because things don't satisfy us. So it's an unsatisfied life today. And in the end, you, you lose your life, which is, which is uh, eternal condemnation, right? It's separation from God for, for all of eternity. That's what happens if you try to save your life. But if you try, if you, the, the second half is, and this is, again, this is opposite of the world's thinking, right? You lose your life for the sake of Christ and the gospel, and you save it, right? Lose your life, and you save it. That is so opposite thinking for us. That's, that's you know, doesn't make sense unless God opens your eyes, right? Unless the Spirit moves to, to help you understand and see how great. Christ is. So losing your life is a denial of self that we just talked about. It's, it's submission to Christ, right? It's giving up your claims to righteousness and, and repenting of your sin and trusting Jesus. It's being willing to lose anything, right? Anything, any, all your possessions, anything for the sake of Christ. And it's, and it's called losing your life because to worldly wisdom, this is, this is suicide, right? The, the world is living for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So this is so foreign to, to our, 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 the culture we live in, the ideas of what life is all about, right? We're, we're all pursuing happiness and what's going to fulfill us, right? If that's not working, that job or that relationship, then... Just ditch that and go find something that makes you happy is what our culture says. Right? And so Christ is saying, no, 
lose your life, and you'll gain it. And so the, the lies of Satan want to tell us, right, that's the end of your life. Man, God's just so boring. He's going to heap a bunch of rules on you and make you some religious freak. Man, he, he just wants to suppress the fun, right? He just wants to hold you down with all this, this rules and religion, which is so opposite of what the Scripture says, right? The Scripture even here says, no, this isn't losing your life. This isn't the end of your life like the world's going to say. This is the beginning of true life. This is how you gain true life, right? John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief only, uh, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, right? So losing your life is, is how you have abundant life. That's the, that's the good news of the gospel, right? That's the good news here. Is, is we tend to focus on what we're losing, but look at what we're gaining. We're gaining abundant life. We're, we're, and, and that's not necessarily a, profit, a promise of health and wealth and prosperity, but it's, it's joy in all circumstances, right? It's joy in, 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 when I have plenty and when I, when I have needs, right, when I'm in want. It's hope. It's, it's peace, right? It's the peace that transcends all understanding. And so submission, surrender, repentance, and serving God is the way to true life. And so, you, and also you got to know this, that it doesn't mean we save ourselves. That would be a contradiction to the first part of it, which says we, you know, you try to save yourself, you, you can't do it, you lose it. This is not about saving, this is about Jesus saving sinners and giving us, giving us a new life. And so following Jesus results in salvation. It results in joy. It results in a, a new identity, a new hope, a new purpose for life. Right? Our, our identity becomes a, a child of God and a citizen of the kingdom of God. So we have hope for a future. And we find satisfaction and love and eternal relationship with God. And so the, for those who are, are spiritually blind, that's just right over their head. I mean, I've shared that a million times, like, like this great hope that we have in Christ. You can't see it until Christ opens your eyes. You can't truly see it. But when we serve Christ, we discover what we're really built for. And just like a, a train runs better on a train track than a football field, we find that we run better, you know, when we're serving Christ and living for Christ. And we find true, fulfilled life and joy. So, uh, so that's what we're going to see, right? We, we, this is what Jesus is doing. I want you to see this because this is going to continue on. Right? Jesus is healing blindness gradually. He's taking the disciples from blind and demanding God on their own terms to seeing and surrendering to God. Right? That's what God wants us to do is see who he is, see what his mission is, see how good he is, and he wants us to surrender. And if you're a believer, God's taking us, that's what God's doing. He's taking us through that process of, of seeing and surrendering and, and, and suffering and hard things come in and they cause us to trust him and surrender more and more. And God's going to take us through this our whole life. We keep 
taking up our cross and keep taking and following him and, and finding true life. All right. And so this this idea is going to continue on next week. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you would help us see and surrender. Lord, that we would no longer live for self, live in blindness, Lord, where the, the world tells us that life's about you. It's about me and, and my happiness and pursue it at all costs. When you say, no, that's a lie. You say, get behind me, Satan, to that lie. And you say, no, surrender to me. Lose your life. Find it. Find joy. Find everything that you're looking for, even if you're looking in the wrong places. In me, Jesus is saying. Give us eyes to see, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.